All right, let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to just come now. Lord, I thank you for your presence here. I pray that your spirit would continue to rest on each person. I lift this message up to you and pray your grace upon it. Bless this time that we share. Father, have your will with us during this time. Give you all praise and honor, Lord. And ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what am I hearing? I'm hearing something. Is it the Holy Spirit? How about, there we go. All right. Um, so, believe it or not, it's Advent. <laughs> yeah. Hard to imagine, isn't it, that we're already, I mean, Thanksgiving just kind of went, whew. Thanksgiving has a very short shelf life in my house. Um, I, I have to... <laughs> I have to keep Christmas at bay for as long as I possibly can, but as about as long as I can do it is up till the end of Thanksgiving Day. Then Christmas just starts to break forth in my home. And uh, so... <laughs> yeah, in all of, some of you are going, well, what's the problem with that? Um, but... It is Advent now, and so this is the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, as you're going to see in a moment, our focus for this Sunday is on the message of hope. Now, I don't know if you all have noticed this, but it's certainly the case that um, when it comes to Advent and when it comes to Christmas, the Gospel of John really gets shortchanged, doesn't it? I mean, we don't really hear much about from the Gospel of John during the Christmas season. Um, you know, which is sort of sad, I guess, in a way. I mean, John was the beloved apostle. Um, but he doesn't begin his Gospel with a narrative of Jesus' birth. Now, to be fair, Mark doesn't either. Matthew and Luke are really the two Gospels that we get the Christmas story from. Um, but, you know, in, in the beginning of John's gospel, there is anything but a hark the herald angels sing moment, 
Muslims don't have that. Um, there aren't very many Christmas plays about the Gospel of John. Um, you know, we don't see children dressing up in shepherds' costumes and like lambs and other small animals that we've had here in the past um, to reenact vivid scenes out of John's Gospel. That just doesn't happen. And rather, when you read John, it's like, well, this starts to sound an awful lot like the book of Genesis. Because John goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, but from that point, essentially, John's whole gospel is a Christmas story. Because he tells us about the light that has now come into the world. And so he reaches, you know, all the way back to the beginning of time for those very first remarkable words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from that starting place, John then begins to craft this tale. And it's the most metaphor-laden of all of the Gospels. It's really um, more of a Van Gogh painting than it is an engineer's blueprint. You know, when we think of what the Gospels say. He weaves together story after story as he sort of paints this picture of the incarnation of Jesus. And what's interesting is that, you know, John was considered the beloved disciple. And he sort of takes after Jesus in the sense that he uses many of the same tools that Jesus himself used in telling the story. He uses a lot of stories, he uses metaphor. So his gospel probably sounded a lot, or sounds a lot like the way Jesus would tell a story in that sense. John sings us a song of the kingdom through an epic masterpiece. It has a very stirring prologue that the first movement of his book is really called uh, the Book of Signs. Then he comes to the Book of Glory, which is sort of the second movement. And then he finishes with a fascinating epilogue. And of course, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, my favorite verse is the very last verse of John's Gospel when he talks about how um, there are so many things that Jesus did that weren't recorded that if they were, that the whole world would not be able to contain them. And so what I want to do this year, oh, turn it on, that would be probably a good idea. What I want to do this year is to present the, the four and there, there actually aren't, there are more than four, so some of these can be substituted. But what I think are the, sort of the four traditional themes of Advent, which are hope, 
peace, joy, and love. And I want to take those traditional themes, but look at them through the less traditional lens of the Gospel of John. And so I think that, at least what my, my hope is this year, is that maybe by looking at these things through a less than traditional means, that we may more fully experience the true meaning of Christmas in leading up to, in the weeks that are leading up to the holiday itself. And each Sunday is going to feature a promise that's sort of associated with the theme that week. And so, as I said, hope obviously is our theme for this week. And the promise that I think comes out of this week is this. The gift of Jesus reveals that the Father is aware and involved in our real-world struggle for hope. And I think maybe even more than peace, maybe even more than love, maybe even more than joy, is there a need for hope right now in our world? I think there are a lot of people that are hopeless. And so this message is for them. This Sunday, this, this whole season is, is one in which we can hopefully restore some hope to people that, for whatever reason, lots of reasons, are hopeless. And so the scripture we're going to look at this week, or this week in particular, are familiar. Um, it's John 3, 16 through 21, but with our emphasis is going to be on John 3, 16. So if you have your Bible and you would like to turn to uh, our text today, it's John 3, verses 16 through 21. And if you don't have a Bible, I've got the words up on the screen. So John 3, verses 16 through 21, which says as follows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, so that just gives us a little bit more context. But what we're really going to do is we're going to focus on verse 16. Now, just to make sure that we're all on the same page regarding this, this was part of a discourse in which Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. All right, and if you're not familiar, Nicodemus was one of the uh, Pharisees. He was a uh, part of the council. And while the rest of them were obviously very unsure, if not suspicious, if not even uh, jealous, and to some extent hateful of, of Jesus, primarily because of the attention that he was drawing, Nicodemus was the one who was curious. 
And he saw something in Jesus that the others clearly didn't see. And he wanted to know more. And so he goes to Jesus. The scripture tells us he, go, he comes at night. In, in looking at this, it was interesting because scholars are even not sure why he came at night. You know, there's all sorts of different arguments they put forth. Most of, most, at least what I had always thought, was that he comes at night simply because he didn't want anybody else to know <laughs> that he was going to see Jesus. He's kind of doing it on the sly, you know, because he knows that if it gets around that that's what he's done, he could get thrown out of his position and, and so forth. So he comes to Jesus at night, and, he, and he's curious. And so he and Jesus begin this dialogue. And uh, Jesus is telling him, you know, and many of you I know are familiar with the story, you know, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him that he must be born again. And he's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can someone who's already an adult be born again? I'm not a child, I'm an adult. And Jesus says, no, you got this wrong. I'm not really talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. Well, you know, Nicodemus is not processing this. This is kind of blowing his mind. So 3.16 is a part of, of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. And, I, you know, if there is, there's probably not a verse that's more well-known and more well-loved than this one. I mean, if, if people only know one Bible verse, it's generally this one. And I think it's... Part of what I think makes it so wonderful is that it so poignantly states that we get eternal life not because of anything that we do. That salvation is a free gift that God gives to us. And all we have to do is, is believe. And in our belief, we accept the gift. And for the 2,000 plus years since Jesus said this, people have been adding things to the gospel. But that which is true still rings as clearly today as it did then. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as I said, Nicodemus had a lot of spiritual training. I mean, he was, the, the folks that got to his position, you know, had been through all of the schooling possible. So he probably could repeat large sections of scripture from memory, you know, just quote whole chapters and, and so forth. But having a lot of education does not equate with having spiritual insight. And that's what he was lacking. And so he couldn't, he couldn't get his mind around this statement that says that Jesus, or that you, know, you have eternal life by being born again. And so what I want to do, for today at least, is to really look at three aspects out of this particular verse. Three truths, if you will, that all all of which give us reason to have hope, which again is our theme for this Sunday of Advent, hope. The three are, firstly, the complete and uncompromising love of the Father. Second is the all-inclusive nature of the Father. 
And third is the unsurpassed generosity of the Father. So let's look at those now. And I think we find this complete, uncompromising love for the Father in this first part of 3.16. For God so loved. And it reveals this underlying motivation in the heart of God. We talk a lot here about the power of God. And I mean, it's something that we, we see as being extremely valuable because we see it as a tool for evangelism as well as a, a way to connect people to God, right? You know, someone can always refute what words you say, but if you pray for them and something that was not healed becomes healed, They've got to figure out, well, what do I do with this? <laughs> you know, that, that's the, you can't ignore that. You know, when God touches you, you can't just slough that off. You've got to put that somewhere. And so we love the power of God, and we want people to pray in the power of God. But what I think we can never forget is that there is something that's behind that power. There's something that's motivating that power. And it's this mind-boggling, selfless love of God that is behind all of that. That the God of the heavens and the earth, this all-powerful and all-capable being who can do whatever he pleases is motivated by a love that is so pure that we really don't have any kind of a human frame of reference for it and so one could say that it's when that power rests on its proper framework which is that unconditional love of God when that's the foundation for it that's when it truly has the power to change. It's very, very difficult for us to pray for someone that we don't love. I won't say it's impossible, but experience tends to reveal that if you don't really love someone and you pray for them, there probably is not going to be a lot that happens. And it's because that power is, needs to be undergirded by love. Now you can't love the way God loves us, but you can love to the best of your ability. And you can say, God, show me how to love this person more. And he will. I think the closest that any of us can ever come to loving the way God loves us is, the, is when we or in the presence of an infant that is close to us. You know, there's that, that something that is so pure and so perfect. That you can't help but love it. And, and so innocent. And isn't it appropriate that that's how God views us? 
it, it's with that kind of a love that he loves us even though we are certainly not pure and innocent and oftentimes are very unlovely. But the thing is, we can have hope. Our hope can come from the idea that this is the love of God. This is the love that is projected to us. And that love gives us hope. Secondly, we would look at the second part of that is that for God so loved the world. And this really gives us this all-inclusive nature of the Father. Now this would have been very startling. This, if you sit in, with Jesus saying this statement to Nicodemus, this would have really caused him to scratch his head. And really anybody else that lived at that time too that was Jewish in particular. Because their theology did not really allow for God to love the whole world. Their theology said God loves us, the Jews. We, yeah, that's pretty clear. But this thing about everybody else, the Samaritans, no. That can't be. The prostitutes, the beggars, the unclean, the people that Jesus liked to hang around with, the sinners, the tax collectors, no. God can't love them, can he? And what John 3.16 is telling us is that yes, God does love them. Just the way he loves all of us sinners and tax collectors. and People who are less than perfect. This was part of the new revelation. This is new hope for anybody that's experiencing hopelessness. See, there's nobody that can stand underneath that statement and, and say, well, God didn't really come for me. God, didn't, God, God wouldn't have died for me. I'm sure he died for everyone else. That I believe. But I don't think he died for me. Do you understand that that's just another form of arrogance? It's more of a negative form, but it's arrogance nonetheless. Because you're somehow saying that the God of the universe, for some reason, doesn't love you enough to die for you. When scripture clearly says exactly the opposite. For God so loved the world. Are you not part of the world? We are all part of the world. And it's, it, it blows our mind because God's love is so indiscriminate. <laughs> That's just not the human way. We like to kind of parcel ours out, you know, so that we don't, you know, make sure we, you know, I'll give my, some to my wife and some to my kids and maybe some to a few close friends, but... I don't really want to love anybody else. 
That's not the way God loves. And I understand that's sometimes the way we have to, that we are. Not that we have to be that way, but we are. God's love embraces everyone. No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. There's a story that I heard one time that I thought just so, just painted such a wonderful picture of of the way the Father loves us. And I don't, some of you may have heard this before, but um, there was a young girl that lived in a Latin American country. And she was very poor. So did not really have any kind of proper, um, you know, didn't really have a bed, kind of just had a mat on a dirt floor. Not, you know, there was no running water. It was a very, very poor existence. And so, um, much like the prodigal son, she longed for what she thought was a much better life in the city. And so she longed to go off to the city. And her mother was encouraging her, no, you can't do that. That's, you know, don't do that. Well, she was very headstrong. And she went anyway. And the reason that her mother did not want her to go is her mother knew what was going to happen. That she was going to fall into a life of prostitution because it would be the only way she could support herself. She was young, she had no real skill, and she would be exploited by the men that would, she was attractive. And so, Days and weeks go by, and the mother hears nothing from the daughter. And finally, she decides that she has got to go into the city to see if she can find her daughter. Before she goes, she does something very interesting. She goes to one of those little photo booth shops, those little photo booths where you can get pictures of yourself, and she spends almost all the money she has taking small pictures of herself. She writes a note on the back. And when she gets there, she goes around town to every seedy motel, bar, every place that she could think that her daughter might frequent. She puts these pictures on the mirrors. And after spending all of the remaining money that she had, she had not found her daughter. And so she went home, heartbroken. But it wasn't but a couple of days later that her daughter, whose name was Maria, is coming down the steps of one of those seedy motels. Her dreams have been shattered. And she was, in fact, living the life that her mother had most feared she would live if she went off on her own like that. And something catches her eye. She goes up to the mirror and she realizes that it's a picture of her mother. And she takes the picture down and she turns it over and what her mother had written on the back was no matter where you are, no matter what you have done, 
I love you. Please come home. And I always see that as such a beautiful picture of what the Father does for us. In that he goes all over and he puts his picture up in so many different ways and in so many different places. And in fact uses all of us as a means of letting other people see him. And it's as if he writes on the back of that picture, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've become. Just come home. And so, I think part of the wonder that John has in writing this is that he consistently sees the world as being this fallen and corrupt and even organized in its rebellion against God. And yet it's against this background of wickedness that the love of God seems to shine most brightly. And for sure, what we see going on around us is wickedness. I pulled some headlines or some storylines from a particular, uh, one particular web website, just to sort of illustrate what's happening. Arsonists setting fire to Israeli settlements on the West Bank. These are all news stories as of a day or two ago. Japan issues booklet to prepare its citizenry for nuclear war with North Korea. Mexican violence wave reveals severed heads and hidden graves. There was a story on there about how sex with robots will become increasingly the norm. There was a story about a mom who injected fecal matter into her son's chemotherapy IV. See, when we're faced with this type of chaos, when we have a front row seat to the physical and the moral and the ethical decline of what, all around us, what we see not only in our own country, but in other countries as well, isn't it our natural tendency to go, hey, I think another flood would be a great idea. <laughs> Let's just wipe everything out and start over again. Well, God tried that once, and it certainly worked. But he said he wasn't going to do that again. And what John, I think, is saying is it's the presence of all of this, not its absence, that provides the most amazing backdrop for the love of God. Because God lo God's love extends to the Palestinian arsonists that are causing those fires. God's love extends to Kim Jong-un and all those that are threatening other countries with nuclear war. 
God's love extends to the violent gangs and the cartels in Mexico doing these horrible things. God's love extends to the people that think the robot thing would be a really good idea. And yes, God's love extends even to the mother who thought that this would be a good way to get her son transferred to a different part of the hospital to get better care. It's by making him sicker and almost killing him. And so in the wave of all this, we can't have hope because God's love is all-inclusive. And then finally, the phrase that he gave, for God so loved the world that he gave, puts on display the unsurpassed generosity of the Father. And it was this, this gift of his Son that we celebrate this God of Christmas. And in this we see that God is an unsurpassed giver. And that this idea of giving is even more specific than the idea of sending, right? We talk about God sending his son into the world, which he, he certainly did. But he gave his son in death so that the world might be saved. Love, when it's at its purest and most mature form, is uh, kenotic. And it comes, that comes from the word kenosis, which is a Greek word, and it means to empty oneself out. Okay, so it's, a, it's sacrificial in nature, so much so that it would offer its own life for another. If you look at Philippians 2, 5 through 7, you see this in, in uh, what Paul wrote. And he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the idea of this canonic love of God. It's a love ready to spend itself to save someone else. And I think that we need to pay attention to the fact that the cross is not said to show us the love of God, the love of the Son, but the love of the Father. Because the atonement proceeds from the loving heart of God. It isn't something that we have to wring out from him. That we have to beg and plead. God, please love us. No. And I think the, Greek, the way the Greek is constructed in the text puts, uh, gives it a little bit more emphasis. It's not God loved so as to give, but actually... God loved so that he gave. There's an actuality that's a part of the way it's phrased. 
that's important. And if we ever were to think that the depth of love is measured in the value of its gift, then God's love could not be greater. God's love gift is, its, is his most precious possession, and that is his son. And so we can have hope because of the unsurpassed generosity of the Father. So to summarize, we have this complete, uncompromising love of the Father. We have the all-inclusive nature of the Father and the unsurpassed generosity of the Father. And from all of these things, we can draw hope because... This gift of Jesus reveals that the Father is aware and in very involved in our very real world struggle for hope. There was a Jesuit missionary uh, named Matteo Ricci. And sometime in the 16th century, he went to China and Probably because he knew he didn't speak the language, he brought pictures with him to show the Chinese, you know, so that they would begin to get an understanding of who God is. And sort of he was going to try and tell them the gospel story in pictures. I experienced this very same thing when I uh, went to uh, Africa and I was with Joseph. He actually used a picture book. It was a kid's picture book with very simple drawings in it. But he used that as a way to communicate the love of God to people that really didn't know him. And so he thought, well, this is a great way to sort of illustrate this love of God for people that have never experienced it before. Well, the Chinese really loved the pictures of Mary and the pictures of the virgin birth and of baby Jesus and all of those sorts of images. Probably the very, like the very same ones that we see on Christmas cards this time of year. But when he produced pictures and paintings of the crucifixion, and he tried to explain that the Godchild had grown up only to be executed, his audience reacted with revulsion and horror. And they insisted on worshiping the Virgin Mary instead of Jesus. And is it not true that sometimes we in Christian countries do very much the same thing? We like to observe a mellow domesticated holiday that's free from the scandal of the cross. We like to purge any reminder of how the story that began in the manger in Bethlehem ended on the cross at Calvary. But it's really only when we link those two things together, the manger and the cross, 
that we can fully understand why there's hope. You see, Jesus' birth brought with it promise. But it was Jesus' death and resurrection that ushered in hope. And so you've got to take those two and combine them. And so what I would suggest, if you want to sort of have some homework or some application for this, and that is take this Advent season and, and do something different than maybe what you have done in the past. And that is, we're going to be speaking out of John, John's Gospel throughout this, uh, this month. So why not take this as an opportunity to read it? Instead of maybe going back over the stories in Matthew and Luke, uh, that we love, and that, but that are so familiar, and read John's Gospel with a thought towards the, the Christmas story. And let John sort of unpack this and unfold this in a way that you maybe hadn't thought about before. Let John tell you the Christmas story in a, in a new way. Amen?